Blog Talk Radio. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called Good News, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It expounds on the central message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ lived and died to save sinners. Request your free book by writing to goodnews at gty.org. That's goodnews at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2020. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 4, John chapter 4. 
We started talking about acceptable worship last Sunday morning, and I want to complete that this morning before we gather around the Lord's table. John chapter 4, and I, I just want to read from verse 20 through 24. This is a conversation Jesus is having with a Samaritan woman. And uh, He confronts her with her sin. As you know, they meet at a well, and she's coming to get water, and He talks about the water of life, which will eliminate any spiritual thirst forever. And they're having this conversation, and it comes down to the fact that she um, is told by our Lord that um, she is living in sin. Without knowing her, he knows she's had many husbands and she's now living in adultery with a man who's not her husband. She is an outcast as a Samaritan and she's even more an outcast as, as a harlot. So he's having this conversation with this woman and he talks about living water and never thirsting spiritually again. And then she realizes that he knows about her sin and she is convicted by that. Eventually, as you follow the story, she acknowledges Him as Messiah, goes and tells her village, and a marvelous act of evangelism has resulted in the salvation of Samaritans. But we pick up the conversation in verse 20, where having had her sin exposed, she realizes she's in trouble with God. And immediately, she poses the question, about how to make that right. And the language she uses is the language of worship. She says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. She understands what many people don't understand, that being delivered from divine judgment requires worship. She knows that she is a sinner. She is unmasked. She already knows that. And now she knows that a man who must be a prophet and may be the Messiah also knows that she is a sinful woman. How does she remedy that? By becoming a true worshiper. The conversation is about worship. I don't know whether evangelistic conversations that we have typically ever get around to talking about worship, but this one directly involved worship. In fact, Eight times some form of the word worship appears in those very few verses that I read. 
Now, although this is a brief part of a conversation, it is intensely about worship. And in fact, it is a pretty comprehensive presentation of worship. It reveals to us the initiator of worship, the object of worship, the sphere or realm of worship, and even the nature of worship, all wrapped up in that very brief dialogue. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians about the services they were holding, the times they were coming together. And he says that there's too much chaos, there's too much disorder. And he says when people come and see the disorder and all kinds of people speaking in tongues or speaking in other languages they don't understand, verse 23, unbelievers are going to say, you're mad. But in verse 24, if all preach, the word prophesy means to preach, not predict the future. If all preach and an unbeliever or ungifted man, the same thing, enters, he's convicted by all, he is called to account by all. In other words, if, if all are preaching, then all are going to bring the word preach to bear upon his heart and he's going to be convicted by the truth and called to account, verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed by that conviction. His sin is revealed. He will fall on his face and worship God. How about that? An unbeliever in a service sitting under preaching will fall on his face and worship God. That is just another way of talking about the conversion of someone, the salvation of someone. We don't talk about it that way, but that is the language of the New Testament, and that was the language of our Lord and the Samaritan woman. When you come to Christ, you bow down, you fall on your face, recognizing your sinfulness, you cry out, for salvation in order that you may become a worshiper, a true worshiper of the one true and living triune God. We're all worshipers. That is what Christians are. We are those, Paul says in Philippians 3, who worship in the Spirit of God. Not just collectively like this on a Sunday, but lifelong. We are worshipers. We bow to Christ. We bow to God the Father. We bow to God the Holy Spirit. We submit gladly, happily, joyfully, thankfully, with full satisfaction. We are worshipers. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. Everybody bows. Most people bow to themselves in some way, shape, or form. And in bowing to themselves, they bow to the kingdom of darkness. Believers worship the true and living God. So we are worshipers by definition. All the time, all the time, we are worshipers. 
lifting up praise and adoration to the one we worship. But the Bible is very clear about how we are to worship. And that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about as we think about this passage. In fact, the New Testament uses a word that I think is helpful for us. Look at Romans 12 for a moment. A very familiar opening two verses. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, or I command you, brethren, by the mercies of God, based upon all the salvation mercies that he's been writing about for 11 chapters, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, here's the key word, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The word acceptable is the important word. God wants acceptable worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Twice now we are told that we are to offer God acceptable worship. In the 14th chapter of the book of Romans, down in verse 17, we read, The kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves or worships Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Again, acceptable worship is what pleases God. At the end of the great epistle to the Hebrews, as you come down to the close of chapter 12, verse 28, very important statement. Listen to it. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service or an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Again, seriousness of coming to God. He is a consuming fire. We come with reverence. We come with awe. We come with joy in the Holy Spirit, as we read in Romans. We come with our bodies and our minds prepared, as we read in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter describes believers as living stones, 1 Peter 2, 5, being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We keep seeing this word acceptable. We are to offer acceptable worship. Now, that assumes that there is unacceptable worship. Let's talk about that. Looking at Scripture, we're easily led to find out what unacceptable worship is. First of all, unacceptable worship is the worship of any other God. There is no other true God. 
but all the gods of the nations are demons, as we read this morning in 1 Corinthians 10. There are plenty of demons who have designed gods and who have mimicked gods so that the world is full of false gods. Any worship of any other than the true God is unacceptable worship. The one true living God. We know that. Shall have no other gods before me. My glory will I not give to another. The New Testament even closes in the book of Revelation. Worship God. So we understand that. God makes a literally an ultimate sin, a damning sin, an eternally damning sin out of worshiping any false god. In the Old Testament, capital punishment came along with worshiping a false god. So unacceptable worship would be to worship any other god than the triune God who is the true and living God is revealed in Scripture. Secondly, unacceptable worship is worship of the true God in a false form. The true God in a false form. What would that be? Back in Exodus chapter 32, in a most bizarre expression of worship, the children of Israel made a molten calf. They melted down all their gold while Moses was up on the mountain getting the law. And they created a golden calf, and they worshipped that golden calf. In chapter 32, you may think, well, they made an idol. They, 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 they made a false god. They were worshipping an, another god. That is not the case. In verse 8, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. In that bizarre act, they literally had reduced their God, the true and living God, who brought them out of Egypt, to a golden calf. As a result of that, you will remember, God slew 3,000 of them on the spot. Unacceptable worship is to worship any other God than the true God. It is to worship the true God in some false form, redefined in any other way than the true revelation of God in Scripture. There's a third kind of unacceptable worship, and that is the worship of the true God in a self-styled way. Now, certainly what happened in Exodus 32 was self-styled. But let's go beyond that for a moment. What do you mean worshiping the true God in a self-styled way? That means not following the revealed prescriptions for worship. God gave the children of Israel very clear revelation as to how He would be worshipped down to the details. For example, in Leviticus 10, you have two priests, Nadab and Abihu, who come before the Lord and offer strange fire. What that means is that whatever they brought of fire to the altar was not according to the divine prescription. 
In the Old Testament, God laid down very specific patterns for them to follow in worship. The point was to let everyone know that God cares about how He is worshipped down to the details. Nadab and Abihu showed up and offered some kind of strange fire, some kind of concoction of their own, and immediately were executed on the spot. They were worshipping the true God in a way that violated God's own revealed prescription. Then there was Saul, who because he felt sovereign and uh, majestic and almighty as a king, according to 1 Samuel 13, took on the role of a priest and engaged in priestly activity, and God cursed his family. And then there was Uzzah, 2 Samuel chapter 6, who reached out to stop the Ark of the Covenant, which was being moved on a cart, from falling off, and he was executed by God on the spot. The Ark of the Covenant was to be carried, but it was to be carried by poles held by Levites, not thrown on a cart. Violating any of God's prescriptions for worship, even down to those kinds of details, resulted in death. When you bring that into the New Testament, you better be sure that you have examined carefully what the New Testament says about worship so that we do not worship God in some self-styled way. That is what led the Reformers to come up with what's called the regulative principle. They regulated their worship according to what the Scripture says worship should be. The Lord's table, prayers, the reading of the Word, the preaching of the Word. And praise and adoration in song. That's what Scripture says worship should be made of. Now there's a fourth suggestion that perhaps is the important one to transition us into our text. Unacceptable worship is worship of the true God in the proper form with a hypocritical heart. Okay? Worship of the true God, even in the proper form, with an empty heart. Matthew chapter 15. Jesus indicts the leaders of the nation Israel, the religious leaders of Israel, Pharisees and scribes to whom he was speaking. Chapter 7, he write, he, uh, Matthew writes, Jesus says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me. You might be in the right place doing the right thing at the right time, But if your heart does not belong to the Lord, it is worship in vain. In fact, that takes us back to last week, you're taking the Lord's name in vain. Now this is exactly the kind of thing that dominated the people of Israel when our Lord arrived. Hypocritical worship was essentially what had developed 
so that true worship was not a part of the religious establishment. In fact, in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, Jesus gives a diatribe against the religious leaders of Israel, and again and again He says, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. He just keeps repeating it and repeating it and repeating it and pronounces doom on them. You may be in the right place doing even the prescribed things, but if you don't have a heart of love and devotion to God, you're a hypocrite. You're like a, like a tomb painted white, Jesus said, but full of dead men's bones. This was the religion of Israel when Jesus arrived. And so He began His ministry with basically assaulting the hypocrisy of Israel's worship. Turn to John chapter 2 for a moment, verse 13. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves. They were selling them at exorbitant prices. They were disqualifying the animals that people had brought so that they would have to purchase their animals. And the money changers, they were basically changing money at ridiculous prices. Again, this was a business that was making the Sadducees and those who ran the temple very wealthy. So he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my house my Father's house a place of business, or as is recorded in another gospel, a den of robbers. His disciples remembered what was written in Psalm 69, 9, Zeal for your house will consume me. What did He find? He found hypocrisy. The worship of Israel was so hypocritical that Jesus began His public ministry by assaulting the temple. And three years later, the final week of His ministry, He did the same thing. He assaulted the temple again. And we read that was the same exact den of robbers it had been three years before. Three years of His ministry, Israel's religion was still hypocritical. But here he begins his ministry in John chapter 2 by attacking hypocritical religion because it is unacceptable worship. Unacceptable worship is to worship another God or the true God in a false form or the true God in a self-styled way or the true God with a hypocritical heart that doesn't really love Him. All of that is unacceptable. And that defined Israel's hypocrisy. It was all unacceptable to Him, and He assaulted it. Not long after that, He left Jerusalem, and He went through Samaria. Turn to chapter 4. 
And you know the story. He runs into this woman, this half-breed Samaritan harlot. And to her, of all people, he reveals the truth about worship. And he has a conversation with her that is evangelistic. And any evangelistic conversation is at its heart about worship. I don't know that we think of evangelism that way. But as I read you in 1 Corinthians 14, 25, what ideally would happen would be an unbeliever would come, hear the preaching of the Word, fall down on his face and worship God. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15 as Paul describes his ministry. All things are for your sakes so that the grace, saving grace, which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. The goal of Paul's evangelism was to spread saving grace to more and more people so that they would give thanks that would abound to the glory of God. That's worship, right? Giving thanks that abounds to the glory of God. All evangelism has as its goal to bring people who have been sinners and under the judgment of God to bow the knee and acknowledge the true God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of all evangelism, then, is worshipers. So when we gather together on a Lord's Day, we are worshipers come together collectively to express our praise. It's the whole purpose of redemption. If you want to know the whole purpose of redemption, all you have to do is look at the redeemed when they get to heaven. Revelation chapter 4. Here's a glimpse into heaven. What are they doing there? Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, four living creatures who are angels do not cease to say, verse 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. They do it all the time, day and night, meaning they do it all the time. They do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders who represent the redeemed will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. And then John in chapter 5 gets another glimpse into heaven. In verse 8, he sees the four living creatures again, the angels, 24 elders, the redeemed. They fall down before the Lamb. And verse 9 says, they sing a new song, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they're all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven 
and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's heaven. That's heaven. So we need to understand that we are worshipers. This woman understood that. Even as a pagan Samaritan, she understood that the issue was about worshiping God appropriately. If she was going to be delivered from judgment and from the consequence of her sin, she needed to become a true worshiper. And her immediate response to her dilemma is, where do I worship? Do I worship here in Mount Gerizim where we Samaritans worship? Or do I go to Jerusalem and worship down there? Where do I go to worship? I need to come before God and bow And with that opening discussion of worship, we look at the text of John 4, if briefly. Who is the initiator of worship? It's here. Who is the initiator of worship? Down in verse 23, the last line. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. The Father is the one who initiates worship. Luke 19.10 says the Son seeks to save those who are lost. Here the Father seeks true worshipers. Jesus said in John 6.44, No one comes unto me unless the Father draws him. The Father is the one who seeks. The Father is the one who draws. And everything is bound up in His title, Father. It doesn't say the Creator seeks true worshipers. That would, that would trim God down. Why does it have to be Father? Because Father speaks of relationship, right? That is to say that since God is by nature a Father, and Jesus referred to Him as Father every single time He spoke to Him except on the cross when He was separated and said, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And what this tells us is that the essential reality of God is that He is a Father, and that is critical because it means He's not alone. There is someone else in that eternal trinity. There is a Son to the Father, And there is a Spirit who comes from the Father and the Son. This is to say that the true and living God is a God of love. We know that because He is eternally in relationship with the persons of the Trinity. I said this a few weeks ago in a question and answer time. A single solo God would not, if such a God existed, would not have the attribute of love. Because if He was eternally alone, there would be no part of His essential nature to attach love to, and therefore it wouldn't be part of who He is. That's a description of Allah. This is what Allah is. Listen to the words of Islam. Allah is one. He begets not nor is He begotten. A solo God, a single God, cannot 
bear an attribute of love. Only a God who has eternally been in a relationship can be defined as a God of love. This is the foundation of all truth regarding God, and this is the foundation of all gospel purpose. God loves. God loves His Son. God seeks a bride for His Son. God loves the world. He seeks to redeem sinners and bring them into relationship to Him. You might think that that's a New Testament concept, something missing in the Old Testament, but you would be wrong. Listen to Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 3, verse 19. And the Lord, through Jeremiah, gives these words. Then I said, verse 19, Jeremiah 3, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations. And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from following me. Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A, verse is, a voice rather is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and the supplications of the sons of Israel, because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the hills are a deception, a tumult on the mountains. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. God says to them, you shall call me my father. Backing from there to chapter 63 of Isaiah, we find very similar words. Chapter 63, verse 16. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. God has always revealed himself as a father. And bound up in that essential nature of God is the reality that he was always a father, always a father, always with the son, always with the spirit. Therefore, love was at the heart of his nature. That is the Christian distinctive concerning the true God, and it sets God apart from all single, solo, false gods. That is why we read in John 3:16, for God so loved the world. That's why we see God's love expressed in Luke 15 when a coin is found and when a sheep is found and when a son is found, there's a celebration in heaven because God loves sinners. In John 14, salvation is even described as being wrapped up in this incredible love of God. Listen to John 14, 21. Well, verse 20, Jesus says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. There we are, wrapped up with the Father and the Son. And then verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Down in verse 23, If anyone loves me, 
He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. It's all, salvation is all about being wrapped up in the amazing love of God. The 17th chapter of John, verse 23. Jesus is praying that they would, all believers would be brought to glory. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Then verse 26, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. When you see Father, you know God is love. Love for His Son and love for His redeemed. You also know He is one with His Son in nature and one with His Spirit. There's no true worship apart from the full recognition of the triune God, the reality of His Son and Spirit being one in essence with Him. That is why Thomas said to, to Jesus, my Lord and my God. This Father, this loving Father, go back to verse 23, seeks worshipers, zetao in the Greek, to crave. He craves objects to love, to strive after. And that, by the way, is the efficacious seeking as God craves the fellowship of redeemed humanity, not only for the fulfillment of His own love, but for the fulfillment of the love of His own Son. He gives each redeemed person to His Son as a love gift. He seeks worshipers. So we say the goal of salvation is worshipers, sought by God, because He loves. The object of worship. The initiator is the Father. The object is also the Father. Verse 21, you, end of the verse, you worship the Father. Verse 23, worshipers will worship the Father. Verse 24, worship Him. Not only is He the initiator of worship, He is the object of worship. This Father is also identified in verse 24 as Spirit. God is Spirit. Or literally in the Greek, Spirit the God. God is equal to Spirit. He is the invisible God. Jeremiah 23, Do not I fill heaven and earth. He is Spirit. He is not confined to an idol. He is not confined to a building. In fact, Stephen in his sermon in Acts 7 quotes from Isaiah 66, and says, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne, the earth the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is for my repose? Was it not my hand that made all things? End quote from Isaiah 66. Therefore, I must be bigger than all I created, not less than, more than. So the God who seeks worshipers is 
a God who is spirit. He is spirit. By nature, He is spirit. Obviously, He humbled Himself as the Son and came into the world confined to a human body for a lifespan. But the eternal God, Father, Son, and Spirit is spirit. We worship then the God who is Father, who is that eternal Spirit who fills infinity with His presence. That leads us to the third point here, the sphere of worship. The source is God. The object is God. The sphere, go back to verse 20. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing in Deuteronomy. You people say, in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That's all coming to an end. Even the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament did not confine God. They were merely symbols of His presence. But she's associating God with a place. We say Mount Gerizim, their temple had been destroyed in 125 B.C. by John Hyrcanus, so there was only remnants left, but they were still worshiping there. The Jews were worshiping in Jerusalem. God was never confined to Jerusalem. And Jesus says here, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What is that hour? The hour of His cross, His resurrection, His ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, and then in 70 A.D., the destruction of the temple. The Samaritan temple already gone. The Jewish temple about to go. So where do you go to worship? God is spirit. You worship Him anywhere and everywhere. He has a new temple. What is this new temple? We read that in 1 Corinthians 10. We are the body of Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians, we are the temple of the Spirit of God. God has taken up residence in us. The temple now, as Peter said, is living stones. We are the temple built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and we are the priests of that temple offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. The Lord lives in His people. No more location. The church is not where God lives. doesn't live in buildings. lives in His people. That leads us to a final thought, the nature of worship. Jesus said to her, verse 22, you worship what you don't know. What did He mean by that? The, the Samaritans only accepted the five books of Moses, not the rest. They rejected all the rest of the Old Testament. So out of 37 books, they accepted five and rejected 32. So Jesus is saying, you don't have the full revelation, so you worship in ignorance. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The, the full revelation, and with it, the knowledge of salvation came to the Jews. We were the repository. We have the full revelation, so we have the knowledge. You have the zeal and not the knowledge. We have the knowledge and not the zeal. But an hour is coming, he says, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, that is, with the zeal and according to the truth. For such people the Father seeks 
to be his worshipers. Those who worship him, verse 24, must worship him in spirit, that is, from the heart, with love and truth, according to the word of God. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. Psalm 47, 7, sing praise with understanding. You need to worship full knowledge of the truth and with a full heart. That's worship. You see a glimpse of that on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Discouraged disciples are walking along the road. The Lord greets them after His resurrection. They don't know who He is. He starts in the Old Testament and He unfolds the truth of the Old Testament concerning Himself. And when they finally realize what's going on, they make this comment, Did not our hearts burn within us while He taught us the Scriptures? That's true worship. A burning heart based upon a knowledge of the truth. True worship. Educated minds, burning hearts. Father, we ask that You would grant to us that kind of worship, worship filled with reverence and awe and love and gratitude and holy fear, that our worship might be acceptable to You. Thank You for seeking us to be Your worshipers. May we be faithful, Lord, to worship You as You desire to be worshiped from the heart, with all our hearts, without hypocrisy, with an undivided devotion to You, and according to the truth of Your revelation. Worship You for who You are as revealed in Scripture, and to love You with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's our prayer. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to Use website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University, where John serves as Chancellor, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
From a Christian foundation, this is Ken Ham, and our popular 510-foot-long Noah's Ark is open in northern Kentucky. Atheists often accuse Christians of being irrational for believing in miracles and for a God that we can't see. But really, it's atheists who are being irrational. You see, in order for them to even argue with us, they're borrowing from our worldview. Let me explain. If evolution is true, then we, our minds, and this universe are just accidents, the result of millions of years of random chance processes. So we really shouldn't be able to trust our minds. After all, they're just the result of accidents. Logic in our minds only makes sense from a biblical worldview that we've been created by God. So in order to argue against Christianity, atheists have to assume it's true. Discover more about the bankruptcy of evolution and the truth of God's Word and the Gospel at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe for email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
An orderly universe? This is Ken Ham, author of the eye-opening book, Six Days and Church Compromise. Our universe is very orderly. It operates by laws that don't change. It's only because of this that we can even study creation. But atheists have a big problem here. They understand these laws exist, but it's very hard for them to explain where they came from. After all, in their view, everything is material. How do immaterial laws of nature evolve from material? And in their view, everything is a result of the Big Bang, an explosion in space. How could random chance produce the incredible order we observe from the atom to the universe? Christians don't have this problem. An orderly creator made everything and everything behaves exactly as he commanded to. Subscribe for free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. There's so much more to discover when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
Where does morality come from? This is Ken Ham, editor of the eye-opening book Glasshouse, Shattering the Myth of Evolution. It's obvious that some things are right and some things are wrong. We all recognize this. But where does morality ultimately come from? You know, atheists have a very difficult time with this question. They can only point to arbitrary changing standards such as culture, the majority's opinion, or personal preference. But if that's the case, we couldn't say what Nazi Germany did was wrong. That was their culture, after all. Or, what if I feel it's right to steal from others? If that's my personal opinion, how am I wrong? Atheists have no ultimate foundation for determining morality. In their view, it shouldn't even exist. So when they make moral judgments, they're borrowing from the Bible. Get more answers to your questions about atheism, creation, evolution, the truth of the Bible, and more at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just a holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the Because of what you do, but simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was As long ago as that was have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same, immutable, Change, never change. When I think 
about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cost. We Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. Saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust he died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished that cannot change. And with this knowledge I am free. Forever this grace it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. Hope, meaning, and purpose? This is Ken Ham, heading up the ministry that's built a 510-foot-long Noah's Ark. A recent study from the United Kingdom reported that 9 in 10 young people believe their lives have no meaning or purpose. And that's no surprise. Most young people in the UK are atheists. Atheism offers no ultimate hope, meaning, or purpose. In that view, we're all just accidents of evolution, and this life is all there is. When you're dead, you're dead. That's it. You won't remember you were ever here, and eventually, no one else will either. There's no ultimate hope, meaning, or purpose in that view. The biblical worldview is so different. We've been created by God to bring Him glory and enjoy Him forever if we repent and believe. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and find more encouragement and answers at AnswersRadio.com.
His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil.
Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group of Christ. Put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to set cash from the furnace. Through Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He proceeded what you see in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior. The greater I am became a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts. Easily posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority. So we both in the most exalted King Christ supreme. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer. No God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, what you get is a prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night and his fright in the might in the dominant mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the lost and he found, though. He was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the crown. Yo, Satan had a shirt hold on him. Fight for the rope, but doping in. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the N. That's what we hoping in. Risen on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hell bound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born, I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout, I was bought with a price. We gotta hope it won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious the God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one. Intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent the name par excellence. Prenom phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon. You see the fiber of cosmology. The abba of astronomy. He's potter. We are pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrection. Resurrected bodily, apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment. Study the development from Old to New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. Crisis on its center stage. Forget religious sentiments. The center on man. But something less is what you're settling. He is the most excellent. Exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance. Yeah, the sinner's sinner. That separated and segregated That severed the relations between man and his maker And placed Christ on his costly cross And compensated his life, death, and resurrection Emancipated and gave us freedom from it all Freedom from the effects of the fall Freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden And from the law So the saints stand and applaud His grace and glorious cause With hands raised, praising his name Singing glory to God <laughs> Through 30 says, 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is commonly called the golden chain of redemption, a summary of the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, how God brings about the salvation of his elect. Scripture expounds further on this beautiful work of God's grace. First, God predestined those whom he foreknew, placing his affections on us before the foundation of the world. Second, God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, dying on the cross for our sins and rising again from the grave. Third is the gospel call. Someone preached to us about our sin and need for a savior, and Jesus is that savior. Fourth is the inward call. Many will hear the gospel, but only a few believe it. This is, fifth, a work of the Holy Spirit called regeneration. Sixth is conversion, faith, repentance, turning from sin to Jesus Christ. Seventh is justification, made innocent before a holy God. Eighth is adoption, that we might be called the children of God. Ninth is sanctification, predestined not only to be justified, but to be holy and blameless before him. And finally, glorification, for we will appear with him in glory. Take heart in knowing that God will save all whom he means to save. Salvation is, from beginning to end, the gracious work of God, when we understand the text. Special thanks to RefTunes. And yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever say, worthy is the land. What's up? With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection More power than gravity His knowledge and strategies confound the academy Bow to his majesty He paid sin's salary Took up blame on Calvary Those who love his name spread his fame is the policy All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice Let's prize our master Christ and rise in the afterlife What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes Who hate truth, the gospel is not fake news the gospel sweeter than it's ever been Ain't nothing changed, let us in, we got the medicine It's still human emergency, the serpent attack You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts Stand up, hands up If you truly love the Son of Man Trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up, hands up Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust, Jesus is the King So his people we will sing and forever say Listen to my composition. Lots of rhythm, but not traditional, kind of different. But God's consistent, no contradiction. My proposition through crucifixion, He mocked and crippled His opposition. It's not some fiction, I'm spitting. The Son of God is risen. And my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison. And through the Spirit, He brings a new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip hop is missing. The proposition is my suspicion. We drop the mission. Not to this, but the Word of God is it not sufficient? The doctrine is that the gospel fixes our condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness a God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? 
king, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gonna celebrate and relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again, he came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again, nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus. When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Then, up, hands up, if you truly love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land, what's up, stand up, hands up, does anybody love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land, what's up,
Further evidence that these were Jesus' actual brothers comes from Psalm 69 in the Messianic Psalm. Messiah says in the verse, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Here, brothers cannot mean cousins or stepbrothers, since the term refers to Messiah's mother's sons. The Bible is clear. Jesus had brothers, and Mary was not a perpetual virgin. The implications... The Catholic concept of perpetual virginity for Mary reveals a low understanding of the God-ordained gift of intimacy and to claim Mary was a perpetual virgin in order to make her appear sinless fails to recognize the doctrine of total depravity for all of us. Big question, was Mary a perpetual virgin? Short answer... Mary was certainly a virgin when she conceived Jesus, but biblical evidence, it's clear that she naturally bore other children after Jesus. If you're a Christian, would you please consider liking, subscribing, or sharing this video? If, however, you're a pagan, please get saved. And then like, subscribe, or share this video. That was talk for you with big question short answers. Was Mary a perpetual virgin? And that's from Wretched, their YouTube uh, channel, W-R-A-T-C-A-T-D, Wretched, and then also see Wretched.org, where they have, their, that came from their TV show, and they also have a radio show podcast, also known as podcast. Then also... Um, check out www.wretched.org at uh, smilesandstuff.com and that's all I got for the show God God with Yancey and friends and the VRVLE bye for now